Welcome to The Peer Perspective. This podcast is made possible by Ascend Mental Wellness. It is based on personal experience and perspective. It is not intended to replace therapy or medical advice. I am your host, Ginger Miller. And I am her co-host, Michelle Morehouse. On today's show, we're going to discuss some of the struggles dealing with dual diagnosis or co-occurring disorders. So, Ginger, can you tell our listeners what is a dual diagnosis or co-occurring conditions? Um, In this setting, we're talking about addiction, whether it's a substance use disorder or addiction of other kinds, and having a mental health diagnosis or struggling with mental health symptoms. Some of the things that make it more complicated are, first I'll introduce the the idea of addiction. With addiction, um, it gets to a point where a person, it, it changes our brain chemistry, literally. And it gets to a point where the addiction owns us, despite the fact that we love our family, care about our kids, or, you know, our, our job is one of the most important things in our life, or whatever those key primary things that people generally put high on the list, addiction can get to a point where it overrides all of that. There's there's a drive within both physical and um, mental, an obsession kind of thing that overrides it. And as much as those other things are the most important to us, it the, the addiction has hijacked our brain. So whether it's a substance, alcohol, a behavior, um, that be, becomes so the chemistry that's going on in the brain makes it so that it it's overriding for that moment the other things that are important to us. And then we follow through on hunting down whatever the substance is or going out and shopping or gambling or whatever the behavior is. And as soon as we're, we've gotten through that, feeding that addiction, calming the addiction, then all the sorrow and everything comes because what really does matter comes back to light. That family, that job, the, the things that really do matter come back to light. But we know we've just gone and messed things up again. Um, and so we start putting ourselves down. You know, how'd I do this again? How, you know, what's wrong with me? And then we hear those same types of messages from the people around us, whether it's family. Why can't you just put it down or stop doing that? And, you know, if it's started to affect our work, um, maybe we've got coworkers or supervisors saying, you know, you've got a problem. You need to stop. And there's a part of us that wants to stop, really does. And in the moments that we are saying, I'm done, in that moment, we are very sincere. But again, that the chemistry that has changed, the physical change that's happened in the brain makes it so that it overrides us again. We end up in a maddening circle. There's also the challenge of the yo-yoing that happens. What is the difference between this maddening circle and the yo-yoing effect? Well, the maddening circle is a cycle within the addiction piece of it, where we want to get better, we try and work on it, 
and the addiction takes over and then we get back into at some point, you know, I want to try and fix this again. That's the maddening cycle that I'm talking about. The yo-yoing um, is where the mental health starts coming in. That's the dual diagnosis piece. Um, so for me, I knew I had mental health diagnoses dealing with depression and anxiety. And so I would get some help from therapist or medication or whatever. And I would get to a point where I'm starting to feel like, you know, maybe I'm a little bit normal and maybe I can tackle sobriety. And so I started doing AA and trying to address things about the addiction. And lo and behold, that's when all the feelings come up because you've put down the substance that has been helping mask it or helping me hide from it. And now I got to look at these feelings that I didn't know how to deal with. And the drink was the answer. So now we're telling ourselves that, you know, I, I want to get sober. I'm not going to drink. So it, it's a bouncing back and forth between helping your mental health and then helping the substance use disorder. And the key for me was to address both at the same time. Um, until I did that, I just bounced back and forth and, and that had its own toll on me as well. Do you think by addressing both diagnoses at the same time, that it is more successful than one recovery method over another? My personal experience, my belief, yeah, absolutely. Um, maybe not for everybody. Some some people, their addiction may need to be addressed first because they've um, just really dug a hole in that perspective. Other people, maybe their mental health diagnoses or the trauma that they've had in their past or whatever. Um, is what really spurred on the addiction. So maybe for them needing to address that first would be. But I would say that my own opinion, everybody um, that knows that they have both could definitely benefit from looking at managing both at the same time. There's That could be a whole nother show as far as looking at how to manage and why, noticing, seeing what the difference between the two are. For example, triggers for uh, substance use disorder or an addiction are going to be different than the triggers of a mental health issue and the importance of knowing the two and how to handle each of them. So it's a matter of helping the whole person, um, that both their mental, physical, emotional, um, spiritual, so the really important thing, I think, is looking at not just treating the diagnosis, but treating the person. Now, how often do you see people not realize that they have a secondary condition that is intangibly tied to that substance abuse? It happens pretty frequently. Most people will recognize that they have, um, if nothing else, a little bit of depression or at least early sobriety. It's really common for people to have, even if it's not a diagnosed kind of depression, a depression of sorts because that behavior or that substance that we've been using was, even though it wasn't a good friend, it was our friend that we turned to. It was our escape, our medicine, our 
it was reliable and we knew that it would give us the escape or the release or the whatever it was that we were looking for in that moment. And now we've taken that away. We're trying to say, you've been a bad friend, get out of my life, but old habits die hard. So how do you, as a peer, what do you do when someone you're working with is confronted with that aspect? Help them recognize that they may be dealing with a depression um, or some other type of mental health symptoms. Um, helping them to look at their feelings. For the majority of people that I know in recovery, the when they get down to being able to look at you know, where things went awry, it often comes back to not being able to manage feelings, not knowing how to handle um, certain situations and how it made us feel or how the emotions that are entangled. So helping someone to stop and look at and identify feelings. I couldn't even identify. I, I knew the definition from like a dictionary kind of point of view of joy or happiness or I, I, I knew what they were that way but there was a time I didn't know what they were to feel them I didn't know how to identify them so helping people in early recovery be able to identify feelings as scary as that is in that moment um, helping them see that they can manage feelings that they're not the enemy. They're not going to kill us. We just need to learn how to manage them. That That's one of the things that I try and help people look at. Can you tell us how you connect people with resources they need when they are faced with a dual diagnosis? Well, uh, if somebody doesn't want to look at some sort of therapy or talk to a counselor or psychiatrist, I'm not going to push it. Everybody has their reasons, their comfort zones. Um, when I am working one-on-one -on -one with individuals, that is definitely something that always comes up because I'm not a therapist and we are looking at feelings. We are looking at, even if we don't have a mental health diagnosis, we are looking at mental health responses to the things that we're learn, trying to learn how to handle. Um, learning how to have better behaviors, responses to things. So I will ask if they have a therapist or counselor, ask if they're in interested in finding one. If they are, then I will try and help connect them with one that their insurance or whatever covers. Um, if they're not interested, then I'm I'm always willing to listen and talk as long as they understand I'm not a therapist. I'm just somebody that's willing to be there. When someone is faced with low self-esteem or uses a lot of negative self-talk, what are some examples of how you would handle this? I know for myself, I didn't even recognize um, the negative self-talk I had. And when I talk with other people, um, even ones that aren't in recovery or something, but you know, especially in recovery, we don't always recognize when we have that negative self-talk going on, that stuff bouncing between our own ears. Um, other people don't hear that. We don't get the feedback. Like if you and I are having a conversation 
you can catch those voice inflections or facial expressions. You know, you can say, hey, are you having a rough day? We don't necessarily see that for when it's bouncing between our own ears. So being familiar with that, finding the cues within body language or um, other phrases that they may share about themselves or something helps me give an idea of if that might be an issue for them. And again, like I said, for large number of people in recovery or dealing with mental health symptoms, that is very often an issue. So it's one that's easy, one that I definitely keep an eye out for so that I can point it out because that negative self-talk feeds the lack of self-esteem that a lot of us also have. Um, And without removing some of that negative self-talk, learning how to change that wording within our own head without being able to build our self-esteem a little bit, it makes it really difficult to even want to look at getting better. There's, There's that, am I worth it? Say I wanted to look in the mirror or say someone in recovery or that you're working with looks in the mirror and says, I don't like what I see. How do you respond to that? (laughs) Most people in early recovery, that's something that they will share. Um, A lot of people in recovery I've talked to don't even have a mirror because of that. They don't want to look at, I know my early recovery, I look in the mirror. It was only to see, was I brushing my hair the correct way with my toothbrush? Was I getting all the areas of my teeth? But to look at me, my face, look at my eyes, that didn't happen that I didn't like who I was. I knew I didn't. And so that's a common thing. And the reassurance of letting people know that that is common. It's very normal for people with uh, an addiction or different types of mental health diagnoses to have those feelings. That's, That's not to say that they're the healthiest of feelings, but they are normal. They're ones that a lot of people have. They're things that can be addressed. Those uh, among all the tons of different things that there are to look at, those are some of the smaller, easier things to try and work on. From that, some of your biggest challenges is with working with emotions and the feelings is getting them to realize those negative thoughts aren't a weakness, but something to address. One of the tools that I learned in early recovery was feelings are not facts. Feelings are very real. There's reasons for feelings. Um, They serve a purpose. And we are totally entitled to have any kind of feelings that we do have. However, I can sit here and my feelings might be that you hate me. But that's my feelings. You, in fact, and I, we get along perfectly fine. But if I'm in that mindset that, you know, that's, I'm feeling that, it's very real to me in that moment. So helping people see that those feelings aren't facts is one coping skill for getting through handling emotions, getting through knowing that I can get past this. I think it's great informing our listeners about this topic. I think if you're listening, that Take what Ginger says to heart. You know, you're not alone. You matter. And just remember there's resources and support. 
one of the biggest resources that we have and don't even recognize, don't even want to consider looking at is the one that we have within ourselves. And that's where getting rid of some of that negative self-talk and building some of that self-confidence. Majority of the time we have our own answers. We're just so afraid of them. So you do matter. You are not alone. Um, find those safe spaces to talk with someone about. I know just getting things out of your head, out of my head, I'll keep it in the eye. Getting things out of my head sometimes was a big piece of being able to learn how to cope with it. So come back, keep tuning in with us. Um, find those safe people to talk to, therapists, counselors, um, specific family members, others that you know may be struggling with the same types of symptoms. Join us for our next show on how a recovery journey can begin. Follow us on our socials and check out our website at www.ascendmw.org for up-to-date resources, newsletters, and podcasts.